0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to SALT Talks. My name is John Darcy. I'm the Managing Director of SALT, which is a global thought leadership forum and networking platform at the intersection of finance, technology, and public policy. SALT Talks are a digital interview series with leading investors, creators, and thinkers. And our goal on these talks is the same as our goal at our SALT conferences, which is to provide a window into the mind of subject matter experts, as well as provide a platform for what we think are big ideas that are shaping the future. We're very excited today to welcome Eric Gleacher to Salt Talks. Uh, Eric is a man with an extremely compelling story. He's always been determined to excel in all that he attempts and has never failed to exceed the very high expectations that he sets for himself. His autobiography, which we're gonna talk about today, is the story of a tournament winning amateur golfer, an officer in the Marine Corps, an investment banker who became one of the half dozen who dominated the M&A and takeover business that changed Wall Street and American business in the latter part of the last century, and a man who had the courage to leave a position as a senior partner at a famous and immensely successful investment bank to establish his own firm that he ran for almost 25 years. Hosting today's talk is Anthony Scaramucci, who's the founder and managing partner of Skybridge Capital. A global alternative invest, investment firm. Anthony's also the chairman of Salt. Anthony is successful in business, but he can't, can't golf a lick. But we won't hold that against him, Eric. Uh, but but I'll turn it over to Anthony. Tell, why don't you for.
1: tell Eric I got fired from the White House while you're at it? You might. I only. Well I only, about I about I about only one like he doesn't sort of know slight. that.
0: But go ahead, John. There's only one slight per introduction. It's
1: either that the fact that you're terrible at golf or the fact that you got fired from the White that House. That could be a compliment to my buddies that don't play golf. You don't know that. That's a badge of honor. Yeah, well, listen, Eric, first of all, it is a pleasure uh, to do this with you. And you wrote a you wrote a legendary book. Uh, we, I read a lot. John will tell you that I probably i try to read 60 books a year. Uh, this book came to me from uh, my lawyer Ed Hurley, who worked on our uh, our m deal for Skybridge, uh, another phenomenal world class person. But, I mean, the book is just chock full of great stories and lessons and principles. And so it's called Risk, Reward, Repeat, How I Succeeded, and You Can Too. Um, you know, John always prints out a script for me for these things because he's, you know, he's keen to at least give me a few questions that he thinks are thoughtful, Eric, because he gets all of the praise for asking the thoughtful questions. But I, I read your book, and one of the things that came out of the book for me is you're a cutting edge thinker. You're somebody that saw the future in our industry and a number of different trends. But I think you've done an amazing amount for a lot of different types of people. Uh, There are women in our industry that say that you were the great equalizer, that you brought them to the table and that many places there were glass ceilings for them But you broke, you didn't write that in your book, by the way, you wouldn't give yourself that self-praise. But this is actually coming from friends of mine that worked for you, that you mentored and that you trained, but you also pushed them through the glass ceiling. And so I want to talk, right? I want to start there, sir. And then I'm going to go back to other things. What was it about these women that you saw? What was it about these women that were drawn to you uh, as they were breaking into what you and I both know at those times on Wall Street? it was a little bit different culture than it is even today.
2: What, what, what it was about these women is that they were very smart. They were tireless and they wanted it, but they didn't know how to get there. And uh, to me, you know, that was a challenge uh, because I, I, one thing I learned uh, at the beginning of my life experience, and I count, I, I, what I mean by that was when I was done with college and I, I uh, chose to enlist in the Marine Corps, uh, that's when I really started learning things. And one of the things I learned very quickly is the power of delegating. And so with these women, what I did was I put them in situations that were really ahead of where they were. In terms of their development in the business, and of course, they excelled, and that that led to you know other things and other successes. And there's there's a lot of them I could I could pick out uh, for example. There's one um, who was a Chinese studies major at Radcliffe or Wellesley, and uh, she's she was from the West Coast up uh, up in uh, Seattle and uh, she spent her junior year in china and she knew nothing about business and and yet she picked it up so fast that within a year she was the top analyst that I had in the MA department at morgan stanley so that's just impressed me and uh, i enjoyed it i enjoyed it. there weren't that, that many women there but uh, to to give a few of them an opportunity to excel and hear feedback like you got that's That's a home run as far as I'm concerned.
1: Well, look, it's a tribute to you because it was a different culture and a different time, sir. So tell us about the journey, though. Tell us about the journey from high school into the Marine Corps out to Wall
2: Street. Why was that
1: your your career arc?
2: Well, I had an unusual journey because I was born in 1940. My father, obviously, I, I met him when I was, you know, an infant. But before you knew it, he was off in the war. He was gone. And he ended, he was in, he was a CB, which are the Navy construction battalions. And he he was working in the Marianas out in the Pacific, building the airfields for the bombers to go to Tokyo and back without having to refuel. And when the war ended, he didn't come home for a couple of years. He he got jobs uh, outside the country and and the reason i tell you that is that because when he did come home i was seven years old so i i, I was just getting to know him and he never once would talk to me about what went on. So uh, you know it was a, it was a very kind of unusual experience for a young kid uh, but then we found that uh, uh, we, we started playing golf together when i was 12. And uh, lucky enough, I could get up, and I could hit the ball, and I got I I kind of had an aptitude for it, and we became very close, and uh, you know, so I ended up with a real happy ending in my childhood. But my dad was a was a construction engineer. That's what he was doing in the in the navy, and that's what he did for the rest of his career. And we moved around. I went to ten different schools. You know, there'd be a job, and it would end, and. Uh, He'd find another one, and it didn't matter where it is. And we went there. So when I uh, when I got to college, really, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't know a lot. I didn't. Uh, it kind of opened my eyes about uh, people and how other people lived and things I didn't know. And I didn't know anything about business. And when I when I graduated from college, back in those days, you either had to keep going to school or you had you had to do military service. And so I decided to do that, and uh, I decided to go into the Marine Corps because it seemed to me it would be the most challenging thing I could do, and, that, and that's that's what I wanted to do. And that was a great decision um, because right away there were all kinds of challenges, and the book kind of goes through them. And uh, to successfully navigate you know, my way through that, was the first thing I ever did in my life, except you know, win a golf tournament that was really a success, and, that, and that's really got me going. I, I acquired self confidence and and went on from there, and I learned a tremendous amount uh, being in the Marine Corps. You, you talk about women, you know, I had a, I was a, a rifle platoon commander in the infantry, so I had forty five men. Um, Most of them uh, did not have a high school education, but I found out that plenty of them were smart as hell, and they were they. And that's where I learned to delegate and and to give people an opportunity. And you know you you'd be amazed at in terms of what they can do. And so I enjoyed it a lot. I was I I was in for three and a half years and uh, uh, ready to go to school when I get out. I decided to go to business school because I didn't know anything about business. And the one thing I wanted to do, which was a function of what I went through growing up, was I wanted to make money because my family never had any extra money. And uh, so I decided to go to business school because I didn't know anything about business. And fortunately, I got interested in finance at the University of Chicago, which is a great financially oriented school. And I found my way to Lehman Brothers. So that's... Well, that would I want to get to Lehman in a second, but you place a
1: particular emphasis in the book on taking smart risks. So I want you to analyze that decision. You're coming out of business school. You're going to work on Wall Street. You choose Lehman. Tell us, take us through that thought process.
2: Well, when the first smart risk I took was was since I was going to go into the military, I was going to do something that was real, you know, that that had some significance. and And back in Back in uh, in those days, there were lots of six month reservist programs. You could go into Air Force Reserve and so forth, and I didn't want to do that, you know. So I I said, okay, I'm going to go in the Marine Corps, and really see what it's all about. And you know, I learned so much. It, it, it affected my life so much, and that wouldn't have happened if I wasn't willing to say to take that risk and sign up for three and a half years instead of some six month uh reservist program and it, it kind of started there and uh i i've you know the i've said it in the book and i and i really believe it uh to the core of my being is that the world belongs to the aggressive and you can't just sit back and you know that's what i i have trouble politically with what's going on now because you know uh, the politicians want to give people things and most people I know don't wanna be given things, they wanna earn things, they wanna have a job, they wanna have self-respect, they wanna have a home, they wanna have a kid, they wanna send the kid to school. And uh, so, you know, those values, all those things, I think uh, I accumulated by, by how I started. And like I said, take, deciding to do it right in terms of going into military rather than take the easy way out. And by the way, it's it's uh, I can understand why it all changed after Vietnam and why the why the military establishment wanted to have a volunteer force. But boy, we we left a lot on the table doing that. You know, I think that to be you'd have a very different situation in Chicago, just to pick an example, with what's going on there now. If you had compulsory military service for for at least for men when they turned eighteen. So in my, in the way I look at it, I was lucky to be able to go through it.
1: Well, well, let me take it one step further, though. The compulsory service, you would have taken a lot of kids off the street. They would have gotten trained. Uh, they would have learned some discipline. But they would have also been an esprit de corps and some civic virtue to all of that that would have probably binded
2: the country more closely together. Is that, is that fair to say? It's, that's not only that. It's absolutely fair. But um they a lot of them would, would acquire an occupation. Uh, I talked to a, a young guy this week who's going in a Marine Corps. He's he's going to he's going to train as a uh, an aircraft mechanic, and when he gets out, he's going to have that trade. And uh, that was true way back when I was in. The, there were opportunities like that. And you're right. If you if you have if you if you uh, have an 18 year old kid who all of a sudden he's part of a group and there is a spirit of core and so forth. And he's bright and motivated. He can take advantage of things like that. Whereas now that that opportunity does not exist. So let, and
1: I, and I, you and I agree on that. Let's shift gears for a second. Let's talk about Lehman. Um, Ken Oletta's book many, many years ago, there was a battle there between Luke Luxman and Pete Peterson. And uh, there's a lot of very smart people. In that room, yourself, Steve Schwartzman, et cetera. Tell us about Lehman Brothers while you were there.
2: Lehman Brothers was full of really talented people, but in those days it it, it lacked a cultural backbone. And the the, the people, the senior people of Lehman, the partners, were basically competing with each other rather than you know pulling together. And so you had various fiefdoms, and um, you know the, the firm had its had its ups and downs. Um, it was uh, it was a place that uh, did well. It went on, you know, for many many years. But uh, everybody knows what the ending was, and to some degree, the ending was a function of the beginning. But there were the you know there was just tremendous infighting. At Lehman, and you had Peterson and the people that were with him, and Glexman and Jim Glanville and others that were another group. Um, and uh, it was good for somebody like me because you could move at your own speed there. It wasn't stratified. You know, you there were there were when I got there, I was the fifteenth guy in the what they call the industrial department, which would would have been the corporate finance department. There was no M and A really didn't exist then, um, and you could move at your own speed. You 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 basically there wasn't a lot of management. So I was by that time I was uh, when I got there I was uh, 27 years old, and I had a wife and a kid, and I felt the world was kind of leaving me behind because I'd been in the military and I'd been to business school, and I could really move and I did. Um, so it was. There was good and bad. Uh, you know, the place survived. Uh, Peterson was was good, and uh, to some degree, he was very smart. He's a great salesman, and uh, you know, Glucksman was a tremendous fixed income guy. He built up a very profitable fixed income business there. But you know, then the whole thing fell apart, and uh, they they were acquired by American Express. And that didn't work, and then they were spun out, and then Dick Fold ran it and uh, did a creditable job, and, and until the end, when somehow he didn't figure out how to get a merger done and, and let the let the place survive, and then it caused a lot of problems and uh, was very tough on him and his reputation.
1: Yeah, no, I, I had a, you know I had, I had sold my business in Newburger Berman, and then I got bought by Lehman. So I, I knew Dick. I, I worked for him for for three years. I still have a. I would say a close relationship with him. But when I was at Goldman, I spent the first seven years of my life at Goldman and the legendary John Weinberg who had such great aphorisms. One of them was, uh, some people grow Eric, but other people swell, make sure you're not a person that swells and that you're growing, you know, keep your head on straight. But he said something about Goldman's culture. And I want to transition over to Morgan Stanley for a second. He said, so my job is to train you to take your six shooters and point them out and shoot out. I don't want you turning these six shooters on each other and shooting at each other and turning yourselves on each other. I want her to be this this esprit de corps. Um, and you describe Lehman differently than that. What about Morgan Stanley? What was the culture like of Morgan Stanley,
2: as you reference in the book? It was a great culture. It was teamwork. Uh from top to bottom, and uh, it was more homogeneous than Lehman. Lehman was eclectic; it had lots of different kind of people, which also is a big advantage if you can if you can make it if you can use it correctly. Which which Lehman really didn't, but but they had a tremendous talent pool. And Morgan Stanley was a little homogeneous. I was the third person that came in from the outside as a partner back in those days. Um, And, you know, you could imagine that you had this firm and there were only three people that came in from the outside. And one of the reasons why I think I succeeded there was because I wasn't uh, a captive of the homogeneity. I didn't grow up there. You know, I'd been in Lehman almost 16 years. And I was by that time, I I was, you know, who I was. And I came into Morgan Stanley and you know I did things I did things a little differently. Um and uh Bob Greenhill, who was running investment banking, and is a it was a tremendous uh, influence on uh, the MA business and Morgan Stanley. <clears throat> After I was there for a few months, he told me he wanted me to run MA. And uh and so I did, and I did it differently, and I did it aggressively. And you know, I did things like uh, I brought Ronald Perlman in as the client for the Revlon deal.
1: You mentioned that in the book and that, that that was a unorthodox client for Morgan Stanley at the time. So tell us why that was and tell us why you recruited
2: him in. Well, I gotten to know him on other on other transactions and Revlon. Um, was a basically a conglomerate. It had the cosmetics business, and then it had a, it had three or four healthcare businesses. And uh, the CEO at the time, Michelle Berzerak, he was unhappy with the uh, the lack of enthusiasm in the stock price, and he decided that uh, he wanted to do a management buyout. But unfortunately for him, he didn't know what he was doing, and he started to approach various companies. And uh, see if they were interested in purchasing the healthcare subsidiaries, and uh, two or three of them came to Morgan Stanley and said, "Told told us what was going on," and you know I knew right away that uh, there'd be a transaction here, and that uh, it, it was not going to be the one that he had in mind. So uh, I decided that uh, Ronald Perlman would be a, a guy who would stick in there and be. Aggressive enough to try to get this done because he would he would be interested in the cosmetics business and we did the numbers and we told him that we thought if it, if um, it all worked out that he could he could uh, buy the company sell the healthcare businesses and end up with the cosmetics business for nothing uh, and in fact that's exactly what happened but I, I I do have it in the book it was a scary thing for Morgan Stanley they. He was definitely uh, like unlike any other client that they'd ever been involved in something that was big and not highly publicized. And uh, when when they were when they, the uh, executive committee was thinking about whether they wanted to to do this, uh, Parker Gilbert, who was the chairman, called me in, and he said, "Eric, we're going to go along with you because I trust you." He said, "But please don't embarrass the firm." And you know, my life kind of went past my eyes and i said all right i'm i'm a risk taker and i'm on i'm i'm in but this i'm betting my career and uh it turned out that i was right about perlman it was the deal was very tough he hung in there he everybody finally gave up he bought the company we sold we sold the uh the subsidiaries at the at the prices or higher slightly higher than we had estimated and uh he made a tremendous deal. He's owned Revlon for the last, I don't know, 25 or 30 years.
1: Yeah. 30, 30,
2: 30 plus years according to the book. Yeah, but you know, a lot of people wouldn't have done that. They wouldn't have uh played their cards like that at Morgan Stanley. But I, I, I always I just did what I believed. And I figured if I if I stumbled, I could I'd pick myself up and I'd I'd figure out something else to do.
1: Well, I think that's the real message of the book. I mean, the risk reward repeat because Sometimes you take risks and it doesn't work out 100 percent, but you got to get back up on your feet, which you demonstrate. Um, Byron Wien was a colleague of yours at Morgan Stanley. I I have built a relationship with Byron. He talks about how every person in their adolescence, they find something that shapes their approach to life. In his case, he was collecting things and he decided that he was going to turn that collection, that stamp collection, and a few other things into stock collecting. Uh, and he often asks young people, well, what was it from 11 to 18 that you were doing, that was you were passionate about, that you ended up doing for the rest of your life? Well, what was that for you, Eric? Is that business, golf? it was What's golf, the- for sure. It was golf. And so go- golf, that, that would have been my guess and a- answer based on the book. So tell us about how golf in your mind transformed your business relationships? And this is a question that John Darcy is loving right now, Eric, because all he does is play golf. Okay. So tell us about the benefit of it.
2: Hey, John, I got it. John Darcy, when the, when, the, when, the, when the moment is right, tell your boss that Ed Hurley, who's his your boss's lawyer, spends more time on the golf course than any lawyer in the United States.
1: There's no doubt about that.
2: Yet, yet, many people are convinced that he's the most prominent lawyer in the United States. So there's an argument. Now in my case- But
1: but not to interrupt you, sir, he's also the most ethical, has the highest integrity. And I'll say something about Ed, which he has said about you, which is obvious, that he loves people. And I think that's something, when you ask people that have worked for Eric Leacher, Uh, What do they say about you? And you can see it here in the book, sir, that you love people. I didn't mean to interrupt you. Let's go to the golf question, though. Tell us about golf.
2: Well, like I said, I moved around a lot when I was a kid. I played baseball. Trouble is, you make the baseball team and then you move and your baseball team means nothing. But when I started playing golf when I was 12 uh i liked it right away and then when i was 13 i played in my first tournament and we had moved we i started we were living in nebraska and uh we moved to norfolk virginia and i played in a tournament it was uh, for 13 and under and i won it and i still have the sterling silver cup and you know when you're 13 and you have an experience like that you want more so then uh about a month or so later. I played in the Virginia Championship for 13 and under, and I won it. And so I got a I got a jump start in terms of playing golf, and uh, that's what I did. You talk about 11 to 18. I didn't. I started when I was 12, but I played golf. You know, you learn things about playing golf. You learn out. You learn about competition, and hopefully, you learn about playing by the rules. You learn the satisfaction of, you know, doing something right, winning a tournament, and and you know, playing playing by the rules, and uh, that's something that I think I've, I've brought uh, with me for the, for the rest of my life. But i won a lot of golf tournaments, a lot of junior tournaments, and uh, I would have never gotten myself into Northwestern where I went to college if I hadn't been a really good golfer. I went my first year of college to Western Illinois University in a little town in central Illinois. And we won the national championship. It's, it was called the NAIA. If you're familiar with sports, you'll know what the NAIA is. Uh, it's a big deal. There's, you know, hundreds of smaller colleges around this country. So I was 18. We, we were national champions. That, that, was a, that was an experience that uh, I've cherished from, from then on. I had a great coach, um, but I decided that uh, if I stayed there, I was going to be a golf pro and I was a pretty decent player, but uh, there were others who were better, Jack Nicholas and a few others. And I said, if I can't be in the top echelon, uh, I, I'm not interested. So I got myself into Northwestern, and they took me because they wanted me to play golf there. So golf had a huge influence. You know, in business, Anthony, I didn't play business golf. There's a difference. It's not – you know, Ed Hurley doesn't go around knocking on doors saying, hey, let's go play golf. But – you know, most people play golf, and if you get a relationship with somebody, you get to be friends. Invariably, you're going to spend time together. You might be skiing, or you might go out on a yacht in the Mediterranean, or you know, uh, go to art galleries or play golf. And so, in terms of relationships, it's a, it's a wonderful thing. I've done it all my life. My uh, my wife and I compete all the time we play even she's a tremendous player so it's brought a lot of joy in my life we play for 10 bucks and we pay right there on the 18th green you know and so it's good uh it's a great thing and uh it, it's had a big influence on me and I met a lot of people and you know when i say reward in the title of the book it means reward those who've helped you so in the case of western illinois university uh, they had a nine-hole course, and I built I built the other nine, so they'd have an 18-year-old course, and we named it for my coach when I was there. And, uh, and repeat means to be philanthropic and hope that others will follow what you did and repeat it. And those things with me, those were not conscious things. They just evolved. You know, the things I did, it just seemed like the right thing to do. Uh, University of Chicago came to me in the mid '90s and they were building uh, a downtown Chicago uh, uh, business school building and uh, you know I gave them most of the money for the building and it, it was a no-brainer because they had affected my life so much and uh, so that that's the way I've lived and uh, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't do it any differently.
1: John, I'm going to turn it over to you. I know you've got a series of questions for Eric, too, but I want to hold up the book one more time because it's a phenomenal book, Risk, Reward, Repeat, How I Succeeded and You Can Too. But the elemental thing in this book, Eric, that I got out of it is integrity, is to remain true to yourself, be anchored to your core principles, don't waver. Uh, Even if you're taking risks, you don't want to shade anything in your life. You just want to go straight forward uh, and you can see it in everything that you've done, sir. So you're a big role model for all of us. And I congratulate you on the book. And I know John's got a series of questions as well.
0: Yeah, we'll stay on golf for a second, just because that's the most fun to talk about, Eric, as, as a fellow golfer, you know, that's where we want to stay. But you, know, you were a great golfer in your own right, but you also rubbed elbows with some of the greatest golfers in history. You know, you, you played in, in all these events, uh, with these elite performers, what did you learn about the mentality of great athletes and great golfers in this instance about you know, what it takes to maintain an edge, whether it's on the golf course, uh, in the military, or in business?
2: Well, the first thing you learn is that they are sticklers for the rules. i give you a really good example. Is I'm, I'm a good friend of Raymond Floyd, who's you know, he won five or six majors. Famous golfer, and he won the U.S. Open in 1986, I believe, at Shinnecock. The week before, he was playing in the PGA Tour event at Westchester Country Club, and he was he was in contention. He was right up there at the lead, and he missed. He hit a putt that didn't go in, and it was kind of on the edge of the hole. And he just backhanded it to knock it in, and he missed it. And, you know, he, nobody saw, I mean, you you couldn't really tell he did it, but it immediately called a penalty on himself and uh, he lost the tournament by a stroke. But the next week he won the U.S. Open. Now he would have, if he, if he had, you know, somehow not done the right thing when he, when he whiffed the little putt, I don't think he would have won the U.S. Open because it would have bothered him. The what I, the other things I've seen from from the uh, the pros, and I've played, sure have played with a lot of great ones, particularly Luke Donald, who's a fellow Northwestern alum, number one in the world for 56 weeks. You know, it's it's the work ethic, it's the talent, the talent level, the eye-hand coordination is is, is off the charts, and uh, you know, and, and you you, it's just the the seriousness of of the way they take it physical conditioning, the way they play, the way they, the way they deal with, uh, their fellow competitors. Uh, it's, it's very impressive. It's, it's a, the, the PGA tour is, a, is a very, very high level ethical professional operation.
0: Yeah. They, they say you can, you can learn a lot about somebody's character and, and personality on the golf course. You know, it's something that if somebody at something so trivial trivial at golf, you know, cuts corners, uh, it certainly tells you something alarming about about uh, being in business with them for sure. Right.
1: Um
0: but I want to transition back to your your business career a little bit first. Maybe we'll finish with a couple of uh of golf questions, but uh you you led M&A at Lehman and Morgan Stanley. You were almost a pioneer in some ways of this now. Uh, what we deem as just normal MA activity, where, where MA is just a huge part of uh, corporate strategy you know, to, to grow. Uh, how has MA evolved from when you started in the business to what it is today, in terms of how uh, you know, how frequent and how aggressive people are with MA uh, versus when you started your career?
2: That's a really good question. And uh, I've thought about it a lot. The back when, and now we're talking about the mid 70s. The business roundtable was an important group. It was uh, all the big CEOs were members, and uh, they had kind of an unwritten deal, which was we're never going to try to take over each other's companies. Um, the world kind of changed, and uh, um, Morgan Stanley represented a Canadian company, he made a bid for an American company. It was very shocking. Uh, and at that point, I was at Lehman and I had I had uh, sold and, and bought some small companies. And my premise was that American businessmen are aggressive. And they, if they want to build their companies as fast as they can, they want to make them as strong as they can. And they want that they want the stocks to do really well. And the way they were going to get there fastest was by acquisition. And I just I believe that was going to happen, and uh, that's why I founded the uh, m and department at Lehman, so we'd have a specialized group that could deal with companies, and that all that all came to fruition, and um, and then was really accelerated in the '80s by uh, Mike Milken, in the Milken years, and the section in the book that talks about the the, the big deals during that period. Um, I put that in there because it's never really been published. You know the inside story about those deals. I think is pretty interesting, and that was a period in American business that had a big effect that uh, goes forward today. And so the M and A business evolved for the, for the basic reasons. I believe that I that I said to you that I saw at the beginning. You know that businessmen want to succeed, and they're gonna and they're gonna do whatever it takes.
0: Right. And we talked about culture culture at the different firms that you worked at earlier. You talked about Lehman. It was sort of a eat-what-you-kill type of environment, but there was maybe a little bit more diversity of people. At Morgan Stanley, it was more uh, homogeneous, uh, but a more you know, team, collaborative environment. If you were to design a culture from scratch uh, for an organization, what elements of each of those cultures and other places you know that you worked or observed, what's that culture that you would look to create?
2: Well, that's where we had a Glacier company. We had this culture. First of all, um, everybody. When I say when I say everybody, everybody that was with any kind of seniority at Glacier Company owned some equity. You know, my secretary owned one percent of the firm. She she's still my assistant after forty years. But everybody did not not a brand new associate, not an analyst, but you know, a guy who was a vice president above, everybody had equity because that's what I wanted when I started. I wanted, I, I figured I didn't know much about investment banking, but I figured you wanted to own equity. You wanted to be a partner. You wanted to wake up in the morning and it was your business. So everybody uh, had equity. We had uh, an elective group, not a homogeneous group. I didn't think that the homogeneity was necessary to have a teamwork culture but we had a, we had an electric uh, group, uh, they were equity owners and there's not a single guy that didn't tell me, you know, how much different this was than working for a big firm, how great it was to come into work and know it's your business. And, uh, you know, that's the way it worked and it was highly successful. The hardest part, I will say this for for me and for any of these boutiques is succession it's very tough, and you'll see. Uh, that some people have done it right; they've changed their business, but it's but it's really tough. But to have to have that kind of culture where people own equity, I think is is really critical. Um, and one of the funniest quotes uh, Steve Schwarzman and Bruce Wasserstein and I were having a drink one night at a party at Wasserstein's house, and and I love Bruce, and he says, "I said, I." He said, I really like you guys. He said, I don't understand why everybody hates everybody else at Lehman. And Schwarzman, without a hesitation, said, Bruce, if you were there, we'd hate you too. And that, <laughs> that was a you know, a very perceptive comment about the culture of Lehman. Um, so you you wanna ha- you wanna have diversity, you want to have women succeeding and so forth, but uh, you don't have to have homogeneity.
0: Right. Uh, and I think a credit to, to your career is how many people that you helped uh, achieve success on their own terms and inspired them uh, to be great. I want to talk about uh, before we before we wrap up with some quick hitter questions. Um, you know you, you decided to write this book early in the pandemic from what I understand. Your, your son helped you edit the manuscript. Could you just talk about the process of writing and taking all that life experience and putting it into these pages and really pouring yourself into that project uh, you know that you wanted to do? Um, before you started winding down your career.
2: Well, I certainly was apprehensive because I had never done anything like that. But I had given, you know, lots of talks at business schools, particularly, but elsewhere too. And uh, at the end of whether it was teaching a case or talking about uh, RJR and Nabisco or whatever it was, the question was, what did you do to succeed? And what do I have to do to succeed? And that's the obvious question. People always ask that. And I thought, that I had some interesting things to say, and in a narrative, uh, you know, some people might get some value out of it. And I had the books that I always like to read are books like Shoe Dog, the Elon Musk uh, biography, which tells how what he did. And, I, and I'm not comparing what I did to those guys at all. I mean, don't get me wrong, but I think that narratives about business and about a person's life and the the moves they make, the choices they made. That's when you say, what did you do to succeed? That's the answer. And in a narrative, I think a narrative is way more effective than a professorial book based on some kind of research. So that's one of the reasons I want to write this book. So what I did and, and my son kind of taught me, um, he, he's, he's published four novels and written a movie. And he said, he's got to discipline himself, you know, that he's got, he cleans his house on Thursday morning and does his laundry and whatever. So you gotta, you've got to have a schedule. So I made up my schedule and that was every day I had to take out my laptop, open it up and I had to write something. I didn't care if it was one sentence I had to write something, and I got into it, and I—I I just it all came out of me, it just poured out of me. I didn't have any notes, I don't have any diaries, but fortunately, my long-term memory is still pretty good—not—not not my short-term memory, my long-term memory is good, and I could write this. And then, of course, with Google search, you can do all the facts checking. And anyway, it just kind of poured out of me, and uh, then I edited, edited it with uh, Jimmy. And we had a ball. And I found that the editing took as much time as the writing. So it was a great experience for me. It was like a bonus experience. I I was so happy I did it.
0: Yeah, as my my wife's grandfather is also a great golfer uh, around your age, routinely shoots his age. He can recall every shot he hit, uh, you know, in a member guest or a club championship from the age of, you know, 14 to 60, but he can't remember what his wife told him about an hour, an hour prior. Um,
2: uh, well, that's, that's, uh, that's par for the course.
0: Yeah, e- exactly. No pun intended. Right. But I, want, I want to finish with a couple fun ones related to golf. Cause you know, I'm, I'm a lover of golf as well. Not nearly at the level that you are, but, but I'm, I'm at least in uh, sort of mid single digits, but um, what's the, the best round you ever shot doesn't have to be score, but you know, where was it? When was it? And what were the circumstances?
2: Oh, well, that's that's a question I've I haven't ever people ask me what my favorite hole is or whatever. I never have an answer for we'll them. get to that. The uh, uh I don't know. There's there I I don't have one that that sticks out. I, 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 hate, no I hate to I hate to, you know, give you a non-answer, but I really don't have one. I've nope. had a lot of good ones, but I, there's not one that jumps out. <laughs> all right. There's no no club championship
0: where you shot 64 and, and uh, stuffed it in somebody's face?
2: No. Um, uh, no. No I mean, problem. A lot no problem. Of, they're all match play. Um, I've. I, John I, I hate to disappoint you really. <laughs> that's not the way my my well, what, uh, mind works with respect to golf
0: Yeah, there you go well what's your what's your favorite hole and or your favorite golf course
2: Well I have three favorite courses get this question a lot. One is the national golf links out here uh, One is Seminole down in Florida and one is Muirfield in Scotland those are those are my favorite uh, courses. Um, I will say this that I did have one experience. Which uh, was one of the uh, one of the things that Nick Faldo thought it was one of the coolest things he ever heard. Um, when I, I I took three of my friends to Muirfield in Scotland, and you know the the, the daylight over there in the summer months is is pretty phenomenal because you're way way up north. And it's light until you know close to ten thirty at night. So we we had we played seventy two holes in one day. We played the British Open in one day. (laughs) And uh, he won the British Open at uh, Muirfield. So he's very, very partial to it. And he thought it was pretty cool. And uh, I will say that we had a lot of bets. We had a lot of, it was very painful. If if somebody quit, they, they had to pay a lot of money to the other three guys, nobody quit. But anyway, I shot 69 the fourth round and uh, that one, I do remember. It, it, it wasn't a meaningful tournament or anything, but it was it was a pretty cool experience.
0: There you go. That, that sounds like a heck of a day. How many holes in one do you have? Eight. Eight. Wow, that's pretty good. There's a lot of guys oh. on tour that don't have eight.
2: If you play from age 12 to age 81, you, you get a lot of shots at it.
0: There you go. Well, Eric, we'll, we'll let you go there. It's been a pleasure to have you on. Uh, you're an absolute legend, both uh, you know, on Wall Street, in the golf world, uh, and just among your friends. You know, everybody speaks so highly of you. And Anthony obviously has a lot more mutual friends uh, than me, but but every time we, we come across somebody and your name comes up, uh, they speak in glowing terms. So it's an honor to have you on. Anthony, you have a final word for Eric before we let him go?
1: You know, listen, I mean, among everything, Eric, uh, you know, when I – I just think the, the way you help the younger people in your career, and you talk about repeat, I hope I, and I hope John can pay that forward to a continual stream of people that come into our industry. I often think about that in terms of our summer program and how we can help people uh, that are coming up underneath us. And uh, you were a shining example of that. So I just wanna thank you for that.
2: Well, I wanna thank you guys very much for inviting me. You've got a, you've got a terrific business. I love the, uh, you know, the SALT uh, uh, portfolio that I looked at. And uh, I know SkyBridge is doing well. And uh, I look forward to meeting you both. Um, I, my wife and I are still hoping we can go to Scotland for a month in September. But if we don't go, I will definitely come to, to the uh, Javits Center when you guys are doing that. We love, and, uh,
1: having you there. We, we, we find a lot of stuff. We've got, uh, it's the unfortunate uh 20th anniversary of the 9/11 tragedy, and uh, Jimmy Dunn has agreed to be one of our keynote speakers. Uh, oh, great! To talk with us there. Um, so, of course, we would it would be a big honor for us to have you, sir.
2: Well, great. Yeah. Now, I wanna, I, I need to figure out if I'm, if I'm going to buy some Bitcoin or not. So, anyway, <laughs> well, we got we got Byron on the bandwagon.
1: Okay, he listens to our Wednesday Bitcoin review, um, and so as he says, uh, he's a lot younger. Than Warren Buffett, so I don't think he thinks he's <laughs> you know he's a he's a junior kid compared to Warren.
2: Yeah, well, you guys are great, so thanks a lot. I've enjoyed this, and um, maybe I'll see you in September. Okay, if well, not, September. sometime.
1: And honestly, I hope you go get to play golf because that's your your dream stuff. But maybe October. But if it is September, we would love to have you. If you can't make it to Scotland, we would love to
2: have you. Great. Okay.
0: Well, Eric, thanks again for joining us again, everyone. The book is Risk, Reward, Repeat, How I Succeeded and You Can Too. A fantastic book talking about Eric's career and all the lessons uh, embedded in in that career that was so filled with integrity and empowering other people, as Anthony mentioned. But uh, thanks also for tuning into today's Salt Talk with Eric. You know, We we love spreading the word about uh, inspiring entrepreneurs like him. Uh, Just a reminder, if you missed any part of this talk, For any of our previous SALT Talks, you can access them all on our website at salt.org backslash talks or on our YouTube channel, which is called SALT Tube. We're also on social media. Twitter is where we're most active at SALT Conference, but we're also on LinkedIn, Instagram, and Facebook as well and ramping up our activity there. But on behalf of Anthony and the entire SALT team, this is John
1: Darcy signing off from SALT Talks for today. We hope to see you back here again soon.